I got the new Elon Musk book. It's actually, I was going to send you this excerpt because I read about 100 pages of it, but I'm kind of skipping around the book. And there's this one part of when Elon takes over Twitter and there is the head of policy, Yoel Roth, who like I was hating on Yoel Roth bad right. during that because he looked like the censor. Yeah. police I mean, he's in, the, the ex, in the twitter files he's but, the ex fbi yeah CIA, yeah yeah he was yeah. the one yeah. yeah but when you read that book it actually like humanizes him and you know elon comes in and they're like bring in ul and elon's like i want to see twitter's tools he's like who has access to these because elon was super worried about a rogue employee yeah just taking down everything and He's like, there only needs to be one person uh, that has access uh, to those tools. And he's like, delete everyone else. And Yola's is like, I already did that two days ago. And Elon, like, he's kind of like taken back by that. He's like, okay. He's like, I like how this guy's thinking. And then he just like point blakes asks you all. He's like, can you be trusted? And Yola said he's kind of like taken back. But then he gets a call. He's at lunch. And uh, it's Elon's attorney. And he's like, hey. Elon said, reinstate Babylon B. <laughs> and Yoel's like, okay, hold on. He's like, you know, they went against policy, our misgendering policies. That's why they were banned. And the attorney came down and talked to him and they ended up, he's like, there's a lot of nuance to this because if you open up that, that floodgate of we're not enforcing our rules, you know, there's all these second, third order effects. And the attorney's like, shit, you're right. Okay, let's talk to Elon. And Tells it to Elon. Elon's like, yeah, but it's like a part of, he's like, this is written in the constitution. It's like a part of a presidential pardon. And you all, I didn't know if he's being serious. And he's like, yes, he's like, but he's like, this is social media. And he's like, if we let up here, it's like, everyone's going to be asking like, Hey, do we actually uphold our policies? And then I'm going to be pushing. He's like, you can change the rule and say that we won't ban people for misgendering, uh, uh, things. And you know, uh, Elon like sat there and thought about it because I didn't know this, but Elon, uh, one of his kids transitioned and Elon, uh, was like, look, he's like, I want to be clear. I don't think that attacking people or misgendering people is cool, but I also don't think that it's sticks and stones and right. violent and hurting people. And Yoel was like, I actually like really agreed with him on that. And he's like, and actually we, we set, started setting in these policies. Like I was actually very vocal about hey i think we're stripping too much free speech and so you see like behind the scenes of all this and like i was like actually yoel doesn't sound like a half bad dude but like i did like hate him through throughout that whole thing it's so easy to to black and white folks without oh super yeah you know without new nuance and context it was like when uh, the girlfriend and I were doing the birthday party on who you invite, and I'm just like, I have to invite the entire city of Richmond. And she goes, what are you talking about? And I go, I don't invite Lindley. And I, <laughs> yeah. I can't invite Paul. You know, it's just like, you get at the list. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. It's just like, everybody's coming. Yeah, let me get a few seconds. Sure, Bossel, how was, uh, how was your week? We could have just rolled that into the BDE. I thought we were. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be. I just needed to jump. Bossel here fucking us yeah. up. <laughs> Come on, Bossel. I was thinking about that. You know how I told you about, um, what's the fantasy football? Matt Berry? Yeah. He's like, man, he's like, my newsletter. He's like, no one comes to me for fantasy football picks. They want to know, like, what's life like with Single. my son, but. It's like even just like interesting things like that. Like, hey, we read something. Like, we should just like talk about that stuff. Cause so, so one of the greatest things Matthew Barry ever wrote was an article called "This Time I Said Yes." And you know, his his wife has uh, three boys with uh, the first husband, and one of the boys came to Matthew Barry and said, "Hey, you know, can we uh, start a fantasy football league?" And everybody asks Matthew Barry to do that all the time. And he always says no, because he doesn't have enough time. Yeah. But when his stepson came in and said, he said, this time I said yes. So they were at a soccer game and he went up to the first husband. And they'd always been respectful to each other and just said, hey, you know, me and I forget the son's name, John are putting a team together for fantasy football league. You and Paul want to put one together. And so they wound up having this draft at their house and the first husband shows up with the longtime girlfriend. He and his wife are there. And he 
printed out rules and half the kids there had played before half the kids hadn't and they just had this great time i mean somebody drafted uh you know pick a uh, mark sanchez in the first round yeah (laughs) they did all that and it supposedly just totally reduced the tensions around everywhere because all the friends and the parents were like oh i can invite them both to a a party it won't be a big deal yeah and he said even he and the first husband started sitting next to each other at games they started texting each other hey you missed the soccer game here's some video of it and stuff and the whole point of the article was this time uh i said yes yeah that's um one shows like if you find common ground on things it's just like Mm -hmm. what i was talking about with like ul there it's like Oh, like Ashley doesn't sound like the person that you thought he was, and there's just a lot of nuance. But if you can like shape up something like fantasy football, is great for that. You know, well, there's yeah, other just any any kind of commonality. Like to your point, right? Like the internet's so weird because it's like people fight about a single one tiny microcosm of a topic, but then they don't ever talk about all the other things that they may or may not have. Well, in you see it in energy, yeah, all the yeah. time. Like all the fighting between yeah. renewables, Solar oil and gas, and nuclear but we've seen that here at digital wildcatters and we've done it at things like fuse where yep if you get everyone together in the same room you actually find out that you have more common ground than what you think well and, and this is i think the founding fathers missed one big item in the constitution i you're gonna laugh at this but i truly believe this political opponents running in a race should have to eat dinner together once every two weeks for two hours with their families no media mm. And if I ever ran for office, I would say that to my opponent because it just, when you're sitting there with your families for two hours, no media, no grandstanding. Yeah. Yeah. It's real. It's not. Yeah. It's real. (laughs) You're going to find a lot more. It's not talking points. Yeah. So something else I don't understand, and it's too bad Mark and Kirk aren't with us i think they have a joint prostate exam today maybe we need a skit of all bde hosts going to get the doctor <laughs> together to get our prostate well, two for one well next time i do it i will record it because it's actually an important thing for men over yeah. 50 all right here's the deal crude's been hanging out please don't record my- you getting your prostate exam <laughs> <laughs> I, just wanna, I can't let that go before Move it took a second it took a second to record to what record he said, that. but all right. All right. Crude's over 90. I've been hanging out over 90. But if you look at any of the indexes, they're all down 5%, 3%. So the public stocks are not tracking with the run-up in crude. What I think is going on, and this is Mark's area, not mine, but uh, the public stocks are just tracking the the major stock indexes the nasdaq's down four the SPE's down minus three i think what's happening is you've had treasury yields on the 30-year go above four and a half percent so this whole notion of a soft landing what's going to happen is you know a lot of doubt being cast there stocks are hurting blah 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 i don't know what to do anymore with the public stocks we've been talking about how there's so much run here and it just, it ain't happening. Yeah. I mean, I've never personally invested in any public oil and gas equities because I always, one, I just don't want to, um, but two, <laughs> I always just find it so interesting how they don't necessarily just track with yeah. commodity prices. Right. And so even if you're there and you're really thoughtful about what's happening on a macro level and you're tracking molecules and supply and demand. Um, there's just so much that goes into a public equity stock. You know, what does their hedge book look like? You know, what does their drilling program look like? What is their ESG stance? And, and <laughs> markets just sometimes don't make sense They're in the irrational. first place either. So, um, well, I found they actually track more with spot prices and I never understood that because arguably you've got, 40 years worth of production at an EMP company. Why doesn't it track the three year strip, the five mm-hmm. year strip, something yeah. like that? Yeah. And it just doesn't. Yeah. So. I always, you know what I really enjoy those? Like I enjoy watching uh, people go through the mental gymnastics on Twitter and, you know, try to explain <laughs> why <laughs> this or that's happening. And I'm like, within like it, 20 minutes. Yeah. Is it all right <laughs> to just like accept that, hey, maybe nothing nothing makes sense but 
you know, there is um, some interesting um, kind of geopolitical backdrop, um, which I know nothing about. But, uh, you know, we brought in, I guess we should have introduced John in on the show. Um, we hey, guys. Didn't have uh, <laughs> didn't have Kirk and Mark here today, so we brought on uh, our substitute um, Armenian. What are you expert. talking about? We traded up. <laughs> no, no, we traded up. Yeah. Um, so John, thanks, lay, John, lay it on us. What's going on in Armenia and Azerbaijan? Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best to be concise here, but I've got to you got to have some a little bit of history to kind of understand it. Well, first, good. first we had a you know we were talking about this in the office, and Chuck had brought it up, and I'm really just. Um, very impressed with Chuck's pronunciation of uh, Azerbaijan. <laughs> I can't say it, so I'm glad Chuck, uh, Chuck and what we're talking about. I'm glad it. that's and, my bar. Yeah, Colin pronounced something Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan, and uh, John chimed in as like, "Hey, that's my people." You know, John's got Armenian uh, heritage. So, anyways, uh, didn't mean to interrupt you, John. No, you're but good. Take it. Yeah. So, uh, both my grandparents in some way or former or from Armenia. So I'm 50% Armenian, but, um, yeah. So dating back to 189 BC, this area, there's a, a name that the Azerbaijanis call it. And there's a name that Armenians call it being Armenian. I'm going to call it the Armenian name. It's called Artsakh with a nice <laughs> on the end of it. Um, but you know, Armenia is the oldest Christian nation in the world dating back to literally BC. Um, and this area has been in that in Armenia or part of Armenia for over a thousand years. Uh, of course, the Ottoman Empire came through. World War One happened. The Soviet Union fe- or yeah, the Soviet Empire fell during World War One. So there was some conflict back and forth. Then the Soviet Union rose and basically declared this area an autonomous oblast. So kind of just like these loose caucus area. Um, then. When the Soviet Union fell in the uh, early 90s, conflicts started popping back up again. Generally speaking, it's been fairly peaceful over the last 30 or so years. Um, but a majority of the population is, it's like 95 plus percent is Armenian. Um, but in uh, 92, when the uh, Soviet Union fell, they both de- claimed it as their own. Um, it was now, it was then just kind of given to the, Azerbaijanis on an international level um but last week or in 20 at the end of 2022 the Azerbaijanis actually set up a blockade on the only route from Artsakh to Armenia effectively blocking anybody trying to flee um and so there was a lot of tension and worry of course I think there were some shots yes no there there was shots there were there was definitely legitimate conflicts of course both sides say that the other was, you know, targeting civilians and, uh, and children and stuff. I tend to lean towards the Armenian uh, side of that, but the, uh, you know, the, the big thing there is that Armenians basically are the, one of the first documented genocides on history. Um, even Hitler referred to the Armenian genocide when talking about the Jews. And so any kind of blockade or attempt to kind of block off that region brought up this whole, like, Hey, we've been through this before. Like, we're not going to do this again. Finally, last week, I believe, um, the Azerbaijanis came in and took over the area. This gets even more complicated because Armenia has a treaty, uh, agreement with Russia that Russia basically has a standing army in this area. Azerbaijan has a treaty with, uh, Turkey. And of course, Turkey and Russia have been going back and forth over a bunch of stuff in Syria. Um, all of this is important to the energy space because, um, there are a bunch of pipelines that run from Baku over on the, what is that? The Caspian on the east side? Yeah. The east. On the Eastern sea to, um, over into Turkey, which also then goes out into Europe and the EU. But one of, uh, one of those pipelines carries over a billion barrels per day. Most of it going to. Europe and Israel, another one carries 9 billion cubic meters of gas from Azerbaijan to Turkey. And so, of course, you've got ties to Russia, ties to Turkey, and then also the EU downstream of all of this potentially being impacted if there's any kind of major conflict in this region because these pipelines run right next to it. 
And so, well, and don't forget that Azerbaijan is producing eight hundred thousand barrels a day of oil. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's, that's not my, insignificant. Yeah, that's material. Hundred million barrels a day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And then it, it is compounded by, of course, the whole EU trying to reduce the reliance on Russian crude and all that stuff. But if this gets interrupted or has to shut down, how do they do that when the source so has goes this away? Confi- conflict been? Um, has it been increasing over? Yeah, the, the last, last few last years, couple, couple months, couple years, it's gotten worse. Uh, there was a, I think, a direct offensive in the in 2020 that kind of went back and forth, and then, like I said, most recently in the end of 2022, they set up this blockade, and then since then, it's kind of been back and forth. With this most recent activity being last week, um, finally, it sounds like uh, an update to that. As of earlier today, is they are finally letting Armenians leave and flee to armenia but of course they're not letting them go back and get any of their stuff and all this stuff so you now you're going to have tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of refugees coming from their homeland essentially going back to armenia with essentially nothing and so the the key to this as i understand it is the russians are clearly distracted right now and so this is giving azerbaijan their their window yeah, I mean, listening to John talk, that was like my next question because he said Russian is supposed to have a military pres- presence there to prevent this, but obviously Russia's Yeah, they didn't put up much of a so. fight apparently last week from what all the records are, and most of the fighting was from actual Armenians in the area uh, just kind of pushing back. But um, now it, I believe there is a ceasefire and they are letting people flee, just not, you know being able to go get any of their stuff. A lot of people had been at like Russian military bases, sleeping outside, really crappy, horrible conditions. And people are calling for, you know, Red Cross and other aides to start ramping things up if they're going to actually let people start leaving now. But yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of a similar situation to the Crimea, Russia, Ukraine stuff, where it's this area of a region of dispute between two different countries. But to your point, of course, Russia has other things going on. Um, geopolitically that they're kind of more focused on and so it's it's an interesting interesting thing well it's it's something we have to to watch because it's one of those things that could wind up with much broader implications Mm -hmm. and you know we wind up taking a million barrels a day of oil out of circulation because the pipeline blows blows up i mean eventually that gets diverted someplace else by ships and all, but that's not an overnight e- event. Yeah. You start blowing up oil fields. I mean, we've seen that uh, in the Ukraine Russian conflict. You'll blow up a pipeline, as I like to say, the Nordstrom's pipeline. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we saw that. But... The Nordstrom's. <laughs> yeah, I want an interesting fact that's completely irrelevant to this, but I'm just looking at, I'm looking at a map right now. Um, I saw Kuwait on here. You know, Kuwait produces 3 million barrels of oil a day, so roughly 3% of the world's oil production. And you can drive across Kuwait in two hours. Like, I didn't realize that until someone came on my podcast that was from Kuwait, and I didn't realize how geographically small Kuwait is. Um, but it's just interesting, like, how energy-dense some of these I mean, that areas region, are. Right? Yeah, I mean, Kuwait, Iran, Syria, Turkey, yeah. Azerbaijan, Russia. Yeah. Like, it's all... And then it's if you actually just start thinking about it, the the social unrest and um just the amount of war and instability in that region for all of recent human mm-hmm. civilization history i mean it's just always been like that right and so um just much different life than what we live over here in yeah. the united states now go but, read the old testament that's been going on for a yep. while yeah well so, i mean even to john's point just in you know recorded history this is this conflict's been going on in this region for years. Yeah. So. Well, hat tip to uh, Doug Green for pointing that out this morning, and we'll watch it as it goes. All right, John, you're on the spot when this, for this story. United Kingdom has pushed back on the internal combustion engine ban. Oh. So now they were going to ban them by 2030. Now they're talking 2035. And uh, the Prime Minister, this is kind of cool, Prime Minister Sunak of the United Kingdom said, this is an unacceptable cost to hard-pressed British families. Oh, that's actually, that's, 
That's an, that's a stand. Um, that's the hottest uh, take I've heard in a minute from a prime from somebody at that level about a as, practical approach to energy. As actually. Mike Umbro would say over on Twitter, this is a boomerang of <laughs> uh, you know policy coming back. But I mean, look when all those twenty thirty targets started getting set, which was just like two years ago, you know, three years ago. I mean, think about it. It's like it's only eight. 10 years away that's not a lot of time in the grand scheme of things and so i mean they're only year-to-date ev sales are only 23 percent of the market in uh in uk so yeah I mean, if you're talking to get to 100 percent in eight years that ain't happening well, i mean there's just so many so many different variables to it right yeah. one the pricing of evs um charging infrastructure just the infrastructure problem alone yeah and it's like okay even if you have the infrastructure we're seeing this in the u.s now okay well whose charger is it is it working is it available like well which is interesting things, because right? like what you're i mean you're starting to see the tesla supercharger start mm -hmm. dominate you know elon i mean had big a brain. ton elon had big brain moves <laughs> there um and just understanding how big of a problem charging would be and you know no one outside of tesla has been able to make a reliable charging network um just straight up everyone hates all the charging networks because you go show up to one and they don't work yeah. um and they're inoperable and so anyways it's i think that we're at this inflection point at least in the united states of of charging to where we're starting to see what the path forward is and commercially viable um, charging, but I mean that doesn't happen by 2030, no. right? Well, it, I mean it. It's a corollary to a lot of things, right? Like you look at the tech industry, you look at you know the standards that have come out of it, like USB and Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and stuff. And that's going to have to happen at some point in the charging industry. Like each company has their charger type, yeah, and their you know ratings and stuff for that. But like. Well, that's, that, a, that's way over the average person's head out of the gate. That's right? Ford. I mean, you see <laughs> right. this Ford partnering up with Tesla yeah. for and their so charging. They're either going to end up partnering like that or yeah. they're going to come up with some industry standard or nationwide standard or something like that that we, yeah. you know. But I want to I want to say one last point on this, and I'm going to ask the girlfriend to close her ears and not listen to this. But the subtle point here that's happening, and I'll I'll say it this way, if you took London out of the United Kingdom, they are poorer than Mississippi, our poorest state. And I think this is a growing recognition of we are damning those people yeah. to a pretty bad life if we're saying you got to drop a hundred thousand bucks on Tesla. Yeah, you know? yeah. And the, and and again, where that comes to, and I've said it many times on podcasts, but I'll say it again is. If our solution to climate change is, hey, poor people, y'all can eat cake, <laughs> yeah. that's not going to end well for anyone. No, so. I mean, that that just leads to civil unrest, yeah. right? And yeah. um, look, superior technology and economics always win. Yeah. And I think I've said this many times. I believe that electric vehicles can be superior products in certain circumstances. Um, you know, I think that long haul trucking. I think that's a pipe dream for Elon. I don't think that'll happen. I think that even long haul uh, passenger vehicles like going on road trips isn't ideal, but you know, Hey, driving within the city from, you know, office to home is definitely a use case where, you know, EVs are fun to drive. The acceleration on them yeah. is quick and, you know, just a great user experience. Um, yeah. My Tesla is an amazing car. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, but, um, you, you know, know it's the even, greatest part about that Tesla was, it had a program where on the dashboard, every seat in the car would come on. If you push a button, it would make a fart noise in that seat. Of course, that was your that favorite. Was that awesome. was your favorite. That was so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quick acceleration. Kelly, what did you yeah. Do? Dad, I didn't do that. <laughs> oh, Chuck's just playing with the fart button the whole time. But, you know, you look at it and, like, I look at it from, like, my personal perspective. Like, you know, I'm better off than most people. And, you know, I'm not rich by any means, but better off than most people. And still, I'm like, it's hard to justify. Yeah. Maybe I'm just cheap. You know, I like my 2015 Toyota Tundra that's paid off. But it's like it's hard to justify going and buying an EV, especially with I'm like, 
you know, if I want to drive to Midland, well, I'm going to need another ICE vehicle to do that. And just the price of them, it's just cost prohibitive. And, um, you know, there's reliability issues. And so I think over time, you know, the, the, theoretically the price should come down, but you need time to allow that to happen and technological innovation for that to happen. You can't set these arbitrary <laughs> time limits like this has to happen by 2030. Um, that's, I mean, you're just setting yourself up for failure at that point. Yeah, so. show me the show me the roadmap and all the studies that y'all did that showed that this was a feasible thing to accomplish by 2030. I think, right? it, was, it's like, I think it was Goldman Sachs in 97 or 98 that said by the year 2020, uh, 98% of the market would be hybrid cars. And what are hybrid cars? 1% of the market. Well, that's also today. bringing up another point too, is that, uh, you know, this is something I talk about often that I feel like we're kind of leapfrogging over hybrids yeah. when um, that should really be the the next step in my opinion um, because you get the best of, best of both, right? Both worlds. Um, the technology's proven and I'd buy a hybrid. I'd buy a hybrid. Like, could you imagine if Ford, instead of the Lightning being all electric, if it was a hybrid? Well, yeah. I mean, you I look would at, buy that in a minute. Well, you look at their EcoBoost. You know, mm -hmm. Tundra just came out. Uh, Toyota just came out with a hybrid Tundra. And I was actually super interested in the dealership's been hounding me to buy them as they come in. Um, but, you know, there's. There's some issues with that one where I'm not sure if it's a better value prop than yeah. their gas engines. And Toyota's problem is like their gas truck is just such a fucking good truck that <laughs> it's hard to justify going to an EV over it. But um, yeah, you know, I, I, I'd be interested to see if there's, in Mike Umbro's words, if there's some boomerang effect to where you see some of these manufacturers start going deeper in on, on hybrids and, I already kind of get the feeling that that's where Toyota is positioning themselves. They've been very clear that they're not going down the EV yeah. um, trail, but I mean, they were the, the trendsetter in hybrids. So I was going to say the new Prius also looks pretty good. They, I think that that's not the problem with the right? Prius. That, that was always the problem with the Prius and the original uh, uh, time was that it just looked dorky. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. I'm like, man, if you would have just made that a normal car, I think that you would have got even more buy-in. It wouldn't have just been some hippie, greeny yeah. car, no. you know? They but, added some nice curves and stuff to it, the most recent yeah. one that they came out with, and I think yeah. it's going to do well because of that I'd factor buy alone. I, right? I would drive a hybrid 100%. The car's purpose is to woo women. That's it, <laughs> yeah. period. Case closed. So, hey, Colin, you sent out a, a cool tweet this weekend that uh, I think I saw last night in between my hangover and losing at poker in Vegas um, about manufacturing. Recount what you said, because I thought that was good stuff. Yeah, and it kind of plays into this EV um, battery discussion. You know, I saw a conversation over on Twitter that was kind of heating up. Uh, our friend Craig Fuller, uh, CEO of Freightways, you know, very uh, knowledgeable in uh, supply chain and logistics, uh, was in a conversation with someone that, think the original poster said something along the lines of uh, manufacturing wasn't coming back to North America. And Craig uh, chimed in there and said he disagreed. And um, I also disagreed. And someone's like, you know, name one, uh, name one thing that's being manufactured in the United States. And I just kind of went off the top of my head. And, you know, I'm familiar with a lot of the uh, battery plants and semiconductor plants, but I'll just read some of these off of here because I don't think a lot of people know um, how much uh, manufacturing and building is uh, being done right now. But uh, Intel spending $20 billion building two uh, chip factories in Ohio. Uh, Samsung building a $20 billion chip factory in Texas. Uh, since the Chips Act in 2022, 60 semiconductor plants have been announced in the United States. I mean, this is a federal initiative to take dependency off of China um, and other parts of Asia to produce our it's Taiwan, uh, basically. Yeah, we're, Taiwan. We've, we've yeah. basically said China's taking Taiwan. Yeah. We need to get chips yeah. built here. Yeah. Uh, LG is building a $5 billion battery plant in Arizona and also spending a ton of money expanding their plant in Michigan. And they have plans for six more plants in the United States. 
Panasonic building a $5 billion battery plant in South Carolina. And then, you know, I've got, you know, there's, there's all these startups. I also mentioned uh, Firehawk because I just love Firehawk. They're based up in Dallas, but do all of their testing out in Midland and they build um, and manufacture uh, rocket engines and rocket fuel. And so it's a uh, super exciting time. Um, not just in energy, but in manufacturing. And I think that there is this thesis that a lot of these manufacturers are going to co-locate with energy assets or at least be built in energy dense areas. And, you know, you already see this. One of my friends, he's a petroleum engineer, um, moved up to Ohio and took a job for Google um, working for their data centers. And, you know, they're up in... Ohio because they've got great weather. Cheap they've got cheap gas, natural right? gas and, um, you know, solar up there as well. And so I, I think that this is a broad theme that obviously the, the government has had a hand in with the chips act and with IRA, but, you know, to be honest, I'm perfectly fine with tax dollars that are being spent on infrastructure yeah. In the United States, if it's spent on healthcare, if it's spent on education, you know, I don't like sending money over to Ukraine or well, or, it was it, misplaced, Colin. If y'all, if you ever follow Rando, Oilfield Rando on Twitter, I mean, he's like, we're sending money to uh, Israel to train journalists on, yeah. you know, like uh, South America's sensitivities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's great. And so, anyways, you know, I'll even go a step further because I've. I've historically always been the biggest free trader on the planet. You know, I thought that was good for humanity and all. You go through one pandemic where you can't get an N95 mask or you can't get ibuprofen. I'm still waiting on the chip for Sarah's car that we bought last year. Yeah, you know? exactly. Like, yeah. So They're selling brand new cars without parts because they literally can't get them. And they're yeah. like, screw it. We'll just do a recall. And just, I'm, like that's easier somehow than actually making it look yeah right and i'm a, you know and i'm i'm not a trump fan but at the end of the day trump and his protectionism rhetoric generally in the right direction i mean we've got to build stuff here it's i don't think we're going to be able to put this photo up on uh bde but i'm looking at one right now of all the the gigafactories that have been announced or are being built it kind of follows the the chili belt, if you will, you know, they talk about kind of New Mexico through Texas, all the way up through the Midwest, through Cincinnati. Yeah. And I still don't believe skyline chili is actually chili, but they say it is, <laughs> but I mean, you're just, you're having gigafactories built all along there, you know, in and Kentucky. What that, and what does that overlap with? You know, it overlaps with cheap gas, cheap gas, um, and then stable power and labor, lower regulated, uh, states that are more friendly to business. And so, you know, that's um, just kind of some of the right to work states. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, people think about manufacturing from the perspective of, you know, reducing costs and the logistics of getting it, whatever you are manufacturing here. But the other part of that is, guess what? Energy is a big component of manufacturing and the and cheaper your energy costs, the that's money your, that's literally, you're going to be able to That's make. literally yeah. your input, you know? Mm -hmm. I took these. Uh, I took this three-month program on uh, Harvard Business School online, and one of the uh, uh, case studies was you were looking at manufacturing plants and their marginal cost to operate, and it was all a power input. Yeah. Um, and they're looking at that and it's like, hey, what's our electricity costs? And um, you know, really just understand like, hey, when you have a semiconductor facility, like that's it's just like oil and gas. Yeah. It's your highest cost to operate. Right. It's electricity. And they right? go out so. and they get contract futures contracts and stuff yeah. with their utilities too, just like the oil and gas companies. Which well, this, uh, well, and and while we're here, just real quick, because I've been talking about it on uh, Chuck Job podcast, we just are in no way, shape, or form capable of generating and transmitting and distributing the power we're going to need yeah. in the United States with AI embedded in everything. Yeah. And the Xbox network and Bitcoin mining and data centers, all that, we're in no way. Which able this is to a good that. thing. This is a good thing. This is this is technological advancement that will progress society forward. 
And so it's a good thing. Right now, the current problems that we have, especially in ERCOT, is really a distribution and transmission problem. It's not as much of a power production problem that people like to make it. But as we start bringing on more things, that problem can be multifaceted. It can mm -hmm. be both a power production problem and a transmission and distribution problem. But And ERCOT is not a unique mess. It foreshadows yeah. stuff. Yeah. Two years later, MISO is going to be there, et cetera. Yeah. So, every, everyone loves to pick on ERCOT, uh, but it's because you have transparency into what's happening and it's a, uh, you know, more of a free market. And, um, you know, talking about all these data centers, um, one thing I wanted to uh, just kind of add on to here was I was watching this video from uh, Steve Jobs, and this was like in the 90s. And he's just, he's talking to this room full of people. And Steve starts talking about, he's like, we're on the wave of the last technological revolution. He's like, and that revolution was free energy in the form of petrochemicals. He's like, petrochemicals have transformed society and allowed us to do all of these things. He's like, and I think we're on the cusp of the next technological revolution, which is the personal computer. And he's like, again, it's free energy. He's like, this Macintosh consumes less energy than what this entire room costs to light it up. He's like, and what that allows is uh, humans to become exponentially more productive and efficient to where someday, like if I wanna ask a question, it'll give me an answer and it takes very little energy to do that. And so I thought it was fascinating to hear Steve Jobs talking about one, how revolutionary oil and gas was to society and then how it plays into computing and the future and uh, creating even more abundant energy efficiency through making humans more efficient. And so um, that's something that I've never really thought about a lot of. Bitcoin mining gets a lot of flack. AI data centers get a lot of flack. But when we think about it, it's like, what's actually, you'll look at those as power draws, but what's the, the net positive for right. it making society more efficient? Mm-hmm and freeing up energy and bandwidth for us to, you know. Develop medicines, yeah. et cetera. Or even yeah. just like with the ERCOT stuff, the on-demand, uh, when they pay the Bitcoin miners to shut down and- Oh yeah, their ancillary you know, program. It's yeah. like that increases the baseload as much as people want to argue that Bitcoin mining is wasteful. It helps make the grid more <laughs> sustainable and, and flexible. Yeah, and just where battery storage is right. today, if if you've got to have an economic use for power at other other times for it to be built to yeah. your point well that's yeah. the thing people look at it as like oh they're just wasting energy it's like well that energy is there whether you're using it or not so yeah <laughs> well like if you really understand the market it's not oh they you know are just stealing they're not stealing yeah. anything no like, they, the energy's there they're providing a service right. that's there to buy electrons right that's and, actually better for yeah the whole market so you know one, one last thing on this on this point because it came out this week too and i want to do a deep dive on it uh over the next two to three weeks is microsoft came out and said they're powering their data centers in the future with micro nuclear. Well, they're looking to hire and they're hiring. They're looking yeah. to hire nuclear engineers because that's where they want to go and I mean, if you look at that, you know, it makes sense with Bill Gates and breakthrough, you know, they're investing heavily into nuclear fusion and these small modular reactors and so um, you know, there's a there's a group of people out there that think that in the future these microgrids will be ran by nuclear um these smrs and you know people are like oh you can have one at your house i don't know if we'll ever get that granular that you have this little small nuke reactor at your house <laughs> but <Iron> Man. <laughs> yeah but you know you look at microsoft i mean years ago i remember them uh taking their uh data servers offshore and putting them underwater uh to mm -hmm. to cool them in the ocean um they're very forward thinking when it comes to energy efficiency and you know these are businesses that are very high margin business that have free cash flow to yeah, invest lots of it you know yeah. you we've talked about this on the show of how much of energy policy these big tech companies are driving right now by mandating that hey we want our uh we want our power to be 100 percent renewable um and clean energy you know there's there's a case to be made that these tech companies end up becoming semi-quasi energy companies in, the, yeah. in themselves, right? I mean, they're going to have to. I mean, at the end of the day, energy is upstream from, from everything, you know? Yep. 
it's all a point of singularity. It all comes back. It's going to be <laughs> fascinating to see the uh, the NIMBY effect of that on uh, wherever they decide to, to put those. Because yeah. That's, I mean, it's the same thing with when I got my master's in energy, right? Like you have to go through all these studies, the environmental, the political, the the local geographical stuff and it's most of the time that's where things get hung up is at the local or regional level where yeah. some group doesn't want that in their backyard or they disagree well, with it's it. Well, it's even I learned this uh I didn't know this but uh out in between Andrews, Texas and Hobbs, New Mexico there's a nuclear facility and um, I was talking to a guy that worked there and I remember a couple of years ago, there was this big, uh, they were going to bring all this nuclear waste out to West Texas. And there was this big push and I had people asking me like, Hey, you need to post about this and tell them that, you know, we don't want nuclear waste out in West Texas. And I was like, I don't actually don't think that that's that big of a deal. It's a fucking mm-hmm. desert and <laughs> nuclear waste isn't that dangerous. Like mm-hmm. it's actually a perfect place for it, to be honest. That's the <laughs> part about all the nuclear stuff. Yeah. It's, and it's, so, but even. I just thought it was very fascinating to have this NIMBY effect from people in Midland yeah. when I'm like, you literally live in the middle of industry mm-hmm. and oil and gas. And but and it's not always, the prettiest place on the planet. Yeah, I hate yeah. to no, say. No, no, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, Look, you can say that. Like, yeah. I'm from there. I'm like, yeah. it's just kind of a good place for industrial right. things like that. It's so. not Balmorea. <laughs> but, you know, well, speaking of. Let's sp- do this. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of Midland, uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, my good friend, uh, Case Van Hoff over at Diamondback Energy. He wrote this uh, op-ed in the Midland Reporter Telegram. And there's a bond in Midland um, for $1.4 billion. And. This includes uh, building two new modern high schools. You know, the high schools in uh, Midland are over 60 years old um, and updating the junior highs, building a new elementary. And it's got a ton of support from uh, Diamondback, Pioneer, uh, Chevron, Endeavor, Conoco, Permian Resources, ProPetro. You know, I see uh, Sam uh, C over at ProPetro being really vocal about this. And, you know, the the thing is, is uh, Midland has had an extreme uh, uh, lack of investment in infrastructure in the community over the last several decades, despite despite a massive rise in prosperity in oil and gas. And, you know, it's pretty sad to see the state has some of the poorest performing uh, schools in the state. And, you know, you look at it from uh, Diamondback's perspective. It's like, how are we supposed to attract the best (laughs) talent here if the city won't invest in itself and provide good schools for our kids. And, you know, there, there was a big ordeal around this uh, $20 million park that was being built. And a lot of it was donor money getting shut down and just this mindset of not, uh, not investing into the community. And, you know, we're talking about, we just talked about this, this manufacturing uh, way that's happening. You know, the, the future of West Texas isn't just, oil and gas i mean it is prime spot for manufacturing for aerospace and data centers and data centers i mean the future of west texas is super bright and it needs to stop being treated like an extraction colony and being treated like a energy export hub and i was telling chuck earlier i was like you know midland odessa should be like dubai of america that's that's the level that it should be on and you know, if you go watch, you know, Friday Night Lights, the reason Friday Night Lights movie was able to look so realistic from, you know, a time frame in the 80s is because shit hasn't changed. Right. And so <laughs> I was going to say, if you've never been to Midland, it's it is just like abruptly shocking at how old all the houses are for the yeah. most part. Right. Like and it took me forever to figure it out. It's like, oh, well, shit, that was like that was when the last bus was, you know, and yeah. then you get into the 20 you know, in their selling for yeah what houses here are selling for and they need all this work you know it's it's crazy i graduated from midland lee in 2008 so it's 15 years ago and then my dad graduated from that school 30 years ago Mm -hmm. chuck was saying this is the same thing down in down in richmond Richmond. and it's like the same building and Julie's like, yeah, well, things have changed. I'm like, it's the same, it's the same, same building. building. Yeah. yeah. They took it's out all the, the same pool. They posted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And anyways, um, you know, it's, it's just an area that actually I didn't even know this the other day, but I was looking at GDP on localized areas and Midland Odessa has the highest uh, GDP uh, um, per capita um, in the United States. And the infrastructure and the education system should be 
a representation of that, right? <laughs> and so, um, you know, Case brought up a really interesting thing in this in this piece that he wrote was, uh, you know, he, he joked because he's 37. He's like the average age in Midland now is 32. He's like that puts me in the old guard now. And really, this it, I, I've never thought about this, but we talk about the great crew change a lot. And digital yes. wildcatters only exist because of the great crew change. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think about this extrapolating out to actually okay. geographical location out in Midland, but that's what's happening is that the the new generation's coming up and that's what Case's article was, you know, kind of this plea to like, hey, it's time for the young generation to step up and let's change this place and, you know, make it a, a place that we actually want to live. And, you know, I actually find it pretty cool because I was in this round table and discussion with a couple of uh, EMP execs and some of them, like Case, he's not from Midland. Um, USC. Somebody, yeah, you know some of these other some of these other people they weren't from Midland and just hearing like their love for the city and like yeah. we're never moving here like we're this is a perfect place to raise our family and so people see the potential in Midland um, and in West Texas and all they're asking for is like can we invest <laughs> can we invest in this and make this a community that's that's um, prosperous for our kids and our our grandkids so two, um, two good points about that. Uh, case brings up is number one, you know, we've got this weird Robin Hood recapture legislation in Texas. And I'm not fully vested on or uh, on how it works, but basically, in effect, profits of a school district can be taken by the state legislature. And I think last year it was $5 billion that was taken away from That's local. Insane education so if you can create fixed cost i.e interest and payback on on bonds then that's not money that's subject to recapture by the texas legislature so there is a financial element to this the other great point i think case made is he was quick to say hey this isn't a perfect bond right a lot of issues there but net net it's uh it we're better off if we do it so i i still but, fundamentally have a problem with the public education system that we deliver it the same way we have for the last 200 years because nobody else does that i think we need competition private enterprise that yeah. said i have a tendency to kind of buy his argument of hey net net this is going to be good. you can't let perfection get in the way of progress no. right yeah and so anyways if you're out in midland and um interested in hearing more about this there's actually a young leaders roundtable um on october 2nd 4 p.m at bush convention center um speakers take the stage at 5 p.m speakers are uh case uh president cfo of diamondback uh, tyson taylor svp of hr and comms at pioneer sam sledge the ceo of pro petro services and then will hickey uh co-CEO of Permian Resources. So um, I'll actually probably come in town for this as well. And so um, you can find information on that online. And uh, So Colin, I'm so convinced that uh, Midland's going to become the next Dubai. I'm going to go buy the Bennigan's franchise down in Monahan's. <laughs> That's how I'm going to play this opportunity. Oh, yeah, uh, Huddle House is always the spot in, <laughs> in Monahan's for me. But it's... I mean, it's ridiculous, though, in all honesty, as someone I was, I was born here, I grew up in Memphis, I came back here, but I've every single person that you generally speaking that you talk to that isn't from Midland that is potentially going to have to be in Midland. One of the first things they talk about is, well, the schools suck. And it's like, how are you going to attract more people to stay there if you don't invest in the most basic thing, which is education? Yeah. yeah like it's unbelievable. Well, That's you know, I was telling Chuck what's even just, it's kind of mind blowing is when I graduated, there were no technical <laughs> elements of school or education. And you live in the most prolific oil and gas basin um, in the United States and one of the most prolific in the world. And there's a lot of kids that don't want to go to college mm -hmm. like myself. And, there's no preparation for going right. out, going out to the field, right? Or just learning any trades. Yeah. And so, you know, Chuck's Chuck had a great point earlier um, before we started recording. He was talking about um, uh, was it Telluride? Telluride, Colorado. Yeah, yeah and how they. Uh, I mean, go ahead. Ba and basically, Telluride, Colorado, um, wanted to have really good schools, and so. They basically, everybody wants to live in Telluride, but it's really expensive. Mm -hmm. So they went out and built, in effect, free housing for the teachers. 
There's a great summer camp in Telluride where teachers can earn extra money being camp counselors and the like. And they made it such that a teacher can live there and they know if it's even close, they win because of their geography. It's right. just, the, it's the most beautiful place on the planet. And, you know, if you have really good teachers and a really good principal, you can teach in a tent. I mean, right. I understand you need facilities and I, I, yeah. I get that argument. You don't actually. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I will say something on that, you know, I agree with you. It's always about people, right? Yeah. I mean, everything, it's, whether it's education, whether building a company, like it's about people, you know, here at Digital Wildcatters, we have a really shitty office. It's not about the office. It's about the people that are in the office, right? And so, but with that said, you know, we live in Cinco Ranch and got some of the best schools in the state. And every time Julie and I go up to our kids' schools, we're, I mean, every time we're like, man, this place is just mm -hmm. so nice. And like, attention to detail on, on certain things. And so there is, there, there's, there's an argument on both sides of but, facilities. But what's and important in, in me telling that about Telluride is, is, uh, they have geography. They don't need something to attract. Oh if yeah. You're, if you're down right. in Richmond, Texas, you probably want to have the nicest school buildings on the planet mm -hmm. to be able to attract teachers. Yeah. And yeah. All. So, well, what I meant by that was it's situation. Yeah, both of Yeah, you know, and the problem, um, just specifically to Midland Odessa, is that, um, you know, one salary or teachers are underpaid. I mean, across the board, across yeah. all districts. I mean, it, it's bizarre to me that we, we don't invest more to get better um, talent. Um, so the people that are teaching our kids really helps when they take away the increase in pay for, you know, uh, master's degrees and doctorates and stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. Katie. And so, <laughs> and then, um, I mean, you know, Midland Odessa is not a very attractive place to go work if you are not there for the energy industry already. Right. And so, um, but one thing that you brought up while you were telling me about Telluride was like, Midland Odessa should really focus on like becoming the place where, you know, if you want your kids to learn like technical things yeah, around trades or engineering, like that should be like the destination yeah. <laughs> for well, that. Right. Like that's what, that's what they should be known for is, um, you know, pumping up the most engineers out of any location in the United States. And so I can guarantee you too, you pull enough in engineers like myself and one of the biggest, you know, pushbacks things we wish we had was more hands-on experience instead of sitting in a lab and doing these theoretical things take me to a the thing that we're learning about and show me right exactly. and it's like oh guess what it's all literally in your backyard yeah, your five, five minute drive literally. away yeah that's and then on top of that what what drives real estate prices most of it is the school like you and i both live in katie because the school districts are the some of the best in the country or state right like if you had better school districts guess what people would build more people would stay you would you wouldn't have this boom bust issue that yeah. Midland has always been fighting yeah. because there would be incentive for people to stay there, whether the industry was there or not. Yeah. And parent, I mean, I don't know a set of parents that wouldn't move to Midland if they had the best schools and the best opportunity yeah. for their kids. Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. That's everybody what I'm does it, that. It becomes yeah. a, it becomes a draw. So anyways, uh, yeah, if you're in Midland, definitely go check this out. I think you have to RSVP or they're asking for RSVPs. I don't know. Maybe you can just show up Bush convention center 4 PM. But with that said, we'll wrap up the show. John, thank you for subbing in. That was perfect, man. I actually uh, learned a lot today. So appreciate you subbing in. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to share it. Um, always appreciate the comments that we're getting over on YouTube. Um, read every single one of them. So thanks for that. We'll catch you guys next week.